0: All right, so welcome to the Comic Book Historians podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. Today we have a very special guest, a comic book distributor, Steve Jeppe, head of Diamond Comics Distribution. Steve, thanks so much for joining us
1: today. My pleasure. Glad to be on with you guys. Thanks for having me.
0: Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Jim. We're going to kind of jump throughout different stages of your life. We have a comic book great series. You're in that series. Basically, we're going to start from your childhood and on. Jim's going to get started. Take it away, Jim. Okay, so what I'd like to do, Steve, is to go to basically where
2: you were born, who your parents are, and your earliest experiences with
1: comics. So let's get started. Is the standard joke that I was born in a hospital because I wanted to be near my mother? <laughs> Actually, I was born in Baltimore back in 1950. Yes, I'm a relic. And I grew up in a really famous neighborhood in Baltimore to this day called Little Italy. Oh, sure. You know, it's not quite what it used to be, so to speak, but there's all the Italian restaurants and... That was my origin growing up in that neighborhood.
2: Did you go into D.C.
1: very much or did you stay primarily in Baltimore? I was pretty much my whole life in Baltimore. A big outing for me once in a blue moon as a teenager would to go to Ocean City, Maryland during the summer with the guys for, you know, a beach party. But I never really didn't travel much. Was always, you know, pretty much a neighborhood kid. I'm from Richmond, Virginia. We were practically neighbors. Kings of Minion, two hours away. I did it many times.
2: Me too. Lots of times. So 1950s. What were your parents? What were they?
1: My dad was a formerly a full-time guy in the service in the army, but later on in life he was driving a truck. You know, blue collarish. My mom, prior to when she got married to my dad, she was a hairdresser. She used, to, in fact, do all the hair for all the strippers on the block, the infamous block in Baltimore, the <laughs> nightclubs. And it was funny because when I was a little boy, after she became a homemaker, I remember distinctly as a little boy in the kitchen, she had put two eye hooks in the door jam, and put a swing in there. So I would swing in and out from the out the backyard into the kitchen while she was cutting stripper's hairs. Little did I know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, that's great. And what about comics? When did you start
1: reading them? Were you an early reader? The very first comic book I probably ever had was when I was five years old. It was a Batman comic. And ironically, that's kind of what got me back into it years later, because it was almost that very comic book that later I when i tell you the story of how I evolved you'll know. But as a kid, I remember at five years old, you know, I would look at the pictures of the comics and I wasn't reading yet, but it was like an incentive. I wanted to know what the hell they were saying. And so that was like an incentive for me to want to learn to read. And I remember telling people to this day about how you can even learn from an Archie comic. I remember learning, it was Life with Archie, knows it was a story, and the word spelunking came up. And I had to know what that was. And I learned out that spelunking was talking about cave exploration. So even a simplistic comic like an Archie comic could improve your vocabulary. That's true. I was a avid comic kid, you know, every time my mother would get home. And back in those days, you know, your mom brought home, quote, unquote, a rack toy. Mom, what'd you bring me? What'd you bring me? And of course, everywhere she went, comics were everywhere. They were at grocery stores. They were at drug stores. So it was inadvertent, but she's always bringing me home a comic. So I got used to reading comics.
2: Now, did they ever get concerned about comics once the... Comic scare started to develop, or did they were they fine with it all along?
1: If they did, I wasn't aware of it. Just, you know, it was so wrapped up. And I think my mom thought it was a great thing for me to be a reading, but I we pacified. I sit there with a pile of comic books. The real good story about this is how I got kind of into back issues. You know, every kid loves seeing something they hadn't seen before. It didn't matter if it was a month old or 10 years old. It was an old comic. And I'll never forget that glorious day when one of my friends came in. He said he found this little, ironically, liquor store just outside the neighborhood in the Jewish neighborhood. I, they were known for the corned beef and the, the merchants there. And this little liquor store on the corner of Central Avenue and Lombard Street, the guy owned it. And his son had a fledgling magazine business. I won't go into what kind of magazines he was selling at the time. But he also had, it was 1959. I'm nine years old. And he had this little cubbyhole boxes of comics that were nickel a piece, old comics. But! Back in 1959, he was the first guy, A, that I knew where I could buy old comics, but he was the first guy that I knew charged more for older comics. So he had his quarter box, his 50 cent box, et cetera. And that was like the score of all scores. I would walk those five or six blocks up there every Saturday, rally around whatever I could do to scarf up $2 and come home at the time with 40 comics I had never read, plop up on the couch. My mother would make me a couple of hamburgers. We had no air conditioning. So the fan was on. And I was in heaven.
2: Now, what were you reading at that point? By nine or 10, were you going back and looking at EC Comics and mad? Or were you looking at Archie?
1: They probably went through my hands at that store. But I was primarily reading, I was very strict with the Superman family. I wanted Superman, Batman, Superboy, Jimmy Olsen, Lois Lane. And anything other than that was getting too exotic. The Flash, Green Lantern, when that was starting to come out. I loved Harvey comics. I loved Archie comics. I loved Disney comics. So I had a pretty good diversification. So humor as a category, superheroes as another. And of course, the infamous teenager, Archie, was a part of what you fantasize with when you got the seasonal stories, whatever holiday or back to school or out of school. And I would sit there and just go into my own little dream world. And how long did you keep reading? Well, I was reading regularly. But what happened, my life took a left turn. I graduated from St. Leo's School, which was the elementary school took the entrance exam to Coward Hall High School, which was where all my friends were going, and I was excited to go there. I aced the test. I had like the highest mark anybody had on the test. I was all excited, and that was kind of the day I found out I was poor because I didn't realize, and maybe I should have on some level, that my mother couldn't afford the whopping $400 a year of tuition mm. because my mother had been, you know, separated from my father pretty much my whole life, went in and out, in and out, they'd be gone, and be back, he would be gone, be back. So I was devastated at the thought I couldn't go to that school and It put a lot of pressure on me, and I reluctantly went to a public school for a whopping three months. I went to Mergenthaler Tech, which in Baltimore is known as Mervo. Very, very good vocational school, but academically, it wasn't exactly rocket science. It was in January, though, after I'd been there a few months, my freshman year, and my mother was really then going on welfare, food stamps, and I had to quit my school and go to work to support my mom. So I guess around that time, when my life went from a pubescent kid, to a man supporting the family, comics kind of just drifted away. I didn't want them to. I didn't even realize it was happening. I just, my life changed. I had to work. And what kind of jobs were you doing? Well, I had a friend. His name was Lester White. Now, first, I had worked at a lot of different jobs. I would get a job, whatever it was. I did so many different things. But if I left the job on Friday, it was only because I had a better job on Monday. So I never stopped working. But I worked at anything from the, there's a famous, well, was a famous place in Baltimore called Bethlehem Steel, was where everybody worked at an area called Sparrows Point. They were one of the major steel industry players. I literally worked there on two different occasions. Once as a contractor's employee, Bill Gartner, Marvel, and Granite, and then later for actually for Bethlehem Steel. But I also worked, the friend of mine, his name was Lester White, he hired me. He was doing burger alarms. He was a sole proprietor. And literally, we would go out and he would cold call a liquor store or whatever to put in what we call a signal mat. You come in, you walk into the liquor store or the flower store, whatever kind of store, and you step on the mat, and it rings a chime to let them know if they're in the back that somebody's in the door. So we would actually physically make them. We'd get sheet metal and wire, and we'd put them together. But the problem was when we went out to sell, and we went all over the Baltimore, Washington area and in Virginia, if he didn't sell something, we had a problem. So literally, there were days when we would go, and we were on the fly, so to speak, and it would be lunchtime, and we'd scrape together... $3 and buy a jar of mustard, a couple hot dogs and a loaf of, half a loaf of bread until he made a couple sales. But he paid me a whopping $50 a week cash. Keep in mind, this is like in the 60s. And I took the greatest delight when I got my pay at the end of the week to give my mother 40 of the 50. Uh-huh. She spent the rest of the week trying to spend it on me. But it was a great time in my life and I felt so fulfilled being able to help my mother. And then you went to work for the post office. Is that right? September 6th, 1969. I love that Palindra, 9669. I got a job as a letter carrier. I took the test. I was fortunate. I got the highest mark on the test. And I got the job in two months, which at the time I was told was unheard of. You really had to wait a long time to get the job. But I got it and I became a letter carrier. I did that from 9669 till June 30th, 1974. So just shy of five full years.
2: But now when you were
1: 22... You came
2: back upon Batman again, and that got you thinking in a different way. Tell us
1: about that. Well, I was married at that point. I got married when I was 20. I had two children at that point already. It was actually kind of 1973, maybe. I'm not sure it was 72, but I had two children, so it had to be 73. And we were on vacation in Wildwood, New Jersey, which is a resort kind of like Ocean City, Maryland. And it was at that point that my nephew, my sister's boy, was reading a comic book on the beach. And I'll never forget it was Batman and Batmite. It was a detective comic. And I'm looking over his shoulder and I get this tremendous nostalgic flashback. I guess it suddenly crystallized in my mind, like, you know, why did I stop getting these? I love these things. This was my passion. So I made a mental note that when I got back from vacation and I was on my job, every opportunity I got to talk to a patron, I didn't literally knock on their doors and bother them, but periodically I would just say, you know, you got the old comics making small talk. And one day... I'll never forget, 5607 Liberty Heights Avenue, good old Mrs. Donatel. She had a son my age who was in college, where I should have been, but I had to go to work. And she showed me his collection. He had like, I don't know, over a thousand comics, all right in my wheelhouse, right around the period I would have been buying them. And I kept trying to buy them. And she wanted to sell them to me, but she didn't want to do it without her son's permission. It took her like three months. I'll never forget that glorious day when she gave me the green light. Yeah, he said, it's okay. And I bought them. Now you gotta remember at the time I had no clue they were worth anything. It wasn't about value. It was strictly about nostalgia. So I loaded them up. I went home and I was like a kid in the candy store going through all my memories. Mm
2: -hmm. So
1: for the first time, I was aware there was value. And then coupled with the fact that I was getting things that I already had, because I kept trying to get more comics, or I had duplicates, I thought, you know, there's a might be some way to offset my hobby here. Armed with that, I found out about these comic book conventions where you could actually go buy a table on a weekend and sell old comics. And I started doing that. And before I knew it, I was making more money on a weekend than at my job. Crazy part was I loved my job and I didn't want to quit. It was a good government job, and a wife, two kids, government benefits, vacation. But the problem was all the conventions, as they pretty much are today, were all on weekends. now if you work for the post office and you're the new kid in the block, you need to have about 237 years seniority to get off on the weekends. So I had this dilemma. I'm making more money on the weekends than my job. I love my job, but I can't go to the conventions. So I did the only logical thing a sane man with wife and two kids and a good government job would do. I quit and opened an unprecedented comic book store in the basement of a TV repair shop, 612 and a half, mind you, Edmondson Avenue. And the rest, as they say, is history.
0: This is an interesting thing. And I've noticed a couple of things. You mentioned the palindrome number. I've read that when you were 10, you would help neighbors with their tax returns. I did. It seems like there's numbers. I've always been a numbers guy. That's been my thing. Yeah, and you think in numbers, and that's great. And I think that's clearly a skill, and that makes you calculate everything you need to calculate. That would mean that when you were buying and selling comics, the numbers, they were adding up, and you were probably always had in the back of your mind what price this one comic was. Even if you bought it three months ago, you probably remembered how much it was, right?
1: Absolutely. To this day, they tell story. We'll be in the warehouse, and this is like 40 years later, and it was funny, my son, Josh, they tell the legendary story of Steve can pick up a comic book and tell if it's missing a page without opening it. And I was in my office one day playing around with a collection I just bought. And I don't even know he's paying attention for that matter. I don't even know he knows the story. And I pick up the Spider-Man number 10, I believe, with the enforcers. I said, damn it, it's missing a page. He looked at me. What do you mean? I says, yeah, watch. I open Sure enough, here's the page come out. He goes running into my son's office. I just witnessed it. It's true. That <laughs> yeah, you can feel the number, yeah. The weight I don't know what it was. I did it so many times over the years that you could, and I bet you I'm not the only person who could do that. It was just a dreadful feeling you got after having, for the first time, discovered that was a possibility. Yeah. And then when it happened, you were almost sneakily or suspiciously holding your breath. Oh my God, please, please. It's a great issue. It's a great cover. It looks so beautiful. Please don't let it have a page missing.
0: It definitely shows how physically in tune you are with the comic itself. If you can almost read its page number like that, almost like Johnny Carson in a way. Now, also during this time with the comic shop in the basement, you were also driving up and down the country, finding memorabilia, items to sell in your store. It seemed like you really kind of were realizing like sentimentality is a commodity. We can buy and sell that. And you really made the most out of that space in that basement, it
1: sounds like. Yeah, it was funny because when I opened the store, 100 bucks, tiny little place, I really had no expectations of making sales per se in the store. To me, It was a place I needed to have to get ready for the conventions, to bag the comics. And the biggest hope I had at the time was that through advertising, somebody would ring my phone and bring me in a great collection, not that I could sell in the store, but that I could sell at the conventions. And I'll never forget, it's even going back before the store. If you're a mailman in the morning, you have to follow up your in in chronological order of the way you walk the route. And if you got done a little early, you had some time to kill. And on my route at the time, the antique trader was like the Bible of the antique industry big, thick publication. So I would have some time to kill and not open and flip through. And then I suddenly see books, magazines, newspapers want it. And I see ads in there for all the guys that I kept seeing at the convention that had all these great golden age comic. And I'm saying, like, damn it, now I know where they're getting them. So I started advertising in there and I was in there for years. And what would happen then is after I opened the store, i never forget the mail would come and I'd see a thick envelope and i never forget I would open it. And if I even went halfway through opening and I saw like a golden age book on it, I'm already dialing the phone (laughs) because I knew speed of calling was snooze, you lose. And that was what led me to be driving up. Pennsylvania was one of the greatest states, still is for finding old collections of everything. And that was the thrill, getting up early in the morning, packing you know, your lunch or your breakfast or whatever, getting ready and then driving up there with the thrill of the hunt, which after all, that's really the bottom line about life, isn't it? The thrill of the hunt. Yeah, sure. Having its one thing but getting it is even more more fun.
0: Sure, being on the prowl of bit and making it happen. I've read that in researching a bit, that let's say if you made a good hunk of money from one deal, you would almost kind of, almost think a little riskily a little bit with it and then make an even bigger deal next, and that kind of got you out of the basement into another location. Can you tell us like an example of a deal and how deals like that then got you to a new location?
1: It's funny, in hindsight, you know, I probably was crazy with a wife and two kids to make a bunch of money on a small, you know, at the time relative to the time, but if the next morning my phone rang and there was a collection that cost, and it was amazing how many times it happened that it was almost exactly what I had. Someone would want. I remember a couple of different occasions. Uh, may you rest in peace. There was a guy named Mark Feldman who owned the Maryland Funny Book Shop. He had a couple stores here. One was called the Imagination Bookshop. He helped to run the Maryland Funny Book Convention. But Mark was a, quite an entrepreneur. He unfortunately died in his late twenties. He had some uh, disease or sickness. But Mark, who was actually where I bought my second store was I bought his store in Silver Spring. But Mark was a guy that he would always come up with stuff. So I never forget the closest I came to what anybody would call a stake to start my business because I really started it without a stake. I just had my paycheck or not even a paycheck now. But when you leave the post office, you have a choice of leaving your money in the retirement fund or taking a lump sum. Of course, I've only been here like less than five years. So I got a whopping $1,500. That was a big number at the time. Yeah, yeah. Lo and behold, good old Mark almost magically calls me up, and guess what the price was? $1,500. And he had the most beautiful, to this day, I've never seen better copies of Four Color 199, The Bullet Valley with Carl Barks. And I still remember the people I sold them to. That was a case of, I'd get a nice little nest egg, boom, sold. Another time I bought a collection, and I made like $5,000 on this collection. Next day, somebody had a collection, $5,000. So I was always confident that I would roll the money. So it led to a philosophy that has really served me well, even up until today. Call me the eternal optimist, but I would go to a convention like everybody else. We had all our expenses. We'd pack up the truck. And then I would say, oh man, it's a slow convention. But the optimism would say, okay, it's a bad convention for selling. Do you know what that means? It's got to be a great convention for buying. So I would then go around the room and the guy that was on Friday had the highest prices in the room. Was desperate on Sunday and was needing to take some money home. There was always buying. Was always to me the biggest thrill because you couldn't replace this stuff. You couldn't just call the factory and order back issues. Yeah, selling is good, but sometimes it's painful. We have a joke called the Chepi Lending Library. I sell them, but they're never really not mine anymore. They're only on loan because <laughs> it'll come back eventually.
0: So your retail business grew from this. It sounds like numbers would almost line up, and you kind of went with some gut instinct. Then you were able to go to a new location. Then you had a second. Then by 1982, you basically had four locations.
1: Actually, 1980, because I had bought, as I mentioned before, Mark Feldman's little store that was in Silver Spring that I moved it later to another location. Then I opened a third store in what is called Crystal City Underground in, in Virginia. And then in 1980, it was really unprecedented at the time, they were opening Harbor Place, which ironically today is 38 years old. It's hard to imagine. But at the time, it was the new festival marketplace. It was the second version of what had already started in Boston called Faneuil Hall. Since then, there's been other South Street Seaport in New York. And I never forget when I took the bite to open a comic book store in a mall where rent was going to be crazy. The night before, all the merchants were getting ready, excited about the opening day. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm excited too, but I'm not really going to get the walk by traffic to buy comic books. The next day we opened, you'd have thought we'd been open for 30 years. And that told me that the comics had the appeal that they always had if they were in front of people. So that was the fourth store. And so in 82, when I was, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, around that period, I was having other little retail stores opening up in the Baltimore, Washington area. And by that time, I had started carrying new comics, almost kicking and screaming because nobody wanted to buy comics, pay two months in advance, get a short discount have to buy them in increments of 25 because they were drop shipped from the printer. It was not desirable. We needed them to keep people coming in on a regular basis every week. So other little stores started to open and they would call me and say, Steve, I can't meet the minimums. I'm way on the other side of town. I'm not a threat to you. Would you mind if I add them on the order? I say, sure, no big deal. I'll do it. So I had like five or six guys and it kept becoming a pain. But then my distributor, New Media Urgex, was the one supplying me. He'd get them into Rockville, Maryland and drive them down and et cetera. Well, what happened was he won a lawsuit against all the publishers that's pretty well you know, known in the industry. And they were forced to break up what was considered a monopoly at the time for Phil Suling. And it wasn't so much that as it was the fact that he had the ability to drop ship. He could never even touch the books. He would say, Joe Blow store needs 500 copies of this, two of that, three of that. And the printer would just literally drop ship them. So he would just take his cut and that would be it. And that put him in a handicap position because speed of delivery was important. So if the books had to go to Rockville first and then back out, they're already on their way to the store. So he would lose the battle of speed. So he won that. And when he did, he moved to Florida and he went out soliciting all the big sub distributors, giving them a better deal. One of our friends, Bob Beerbomb was one of them. Common Ground. Common Ground. And so there was like a bunch of those. So then Time went on, and eventually, I saw the writing on the wall that he was going to be in trouble, wasn't paying his bills, blah, blah, blah. I applied to go direct to Marvel Comics. And it was after I got accepted direct, I had to sweat it out that for those two months, he would stay afloat so I wouldn't lose my supply, him getting put on hold. And lo and behold, with one week to go, he got put on hold. And the publishers weren't in a position to release the books to me because technically, he might yet still pay. So they needed his permission. So I was in Florida. I went to the first Marvel meeting that I was invited to. And while I was there, I visited his location. And that's when we cut a deal for me to take over. And that's when you became sub-distributor to
0: distributor, you're saying, right?
1: Yeah, he had a location in Largo, Florida. Mm-hmm. He had some crazy name and He had one called Fantastic Kingdom. He had one that he ran himself with his own employees in Cambridge called Solar Splice and Liquors. And then he had me as a sub-distributor in Baltimore. He had Mike Ferrero, who owned Fat Jacks in Philadelphia. And then he had in Northeast Ohio News. You're talking about Hal Schuster, right? Yes, Hal. And his father was Irwin and Jackie. Originally was Erjax, as in Irwin and Jackie. And then his other son, Hal, had New Media. They combined to become New Media Erjax. And then when I did the deal with him, I suddenly had a location in Florida, one in Cambridge, but one I had in Baltimore. Philadelphia, Mike Ferrero came aboard. And the only piece I really didn't get at that time Was Northeast Ohio News, Neon. And that ironically sort of became the nucleus of Capital City Distribution in Wisconsin, which became my biggest competitor for many years. Before we
0: get into the distribution, Jim, do you have any questions before we go to the next point? One thing
2: we wanted to do, Steve, was because some of the listeners are going to be interested in your thoughts on what's happening now. So when we cover something, I'm going to kind of then apply it to a question that's about current comic industry, because I can't think of anybody that understands a lot of aspects of this industry any better than you do. So we want to hear from you on that. So we're talking about retail. And I guess the question I would have would be, and I'm sure you hear this a lot, who's going to survive in terms of your retail stores? Are the current owners going to make it or are they just going to go out of business and new people when things get back to a different place? new people are going to open up new stores. And what is Diamond going to do to help these people get through this?
1: Well, I think none of us have a crystal ball to be able to say who is going to uh, survive or not. There's been clear speculation, not just in the comic book industry, but everywhere in the world now, because everybody's affected by the pandemic, that there's going to be some shrinkage or some fallout. I'm encouraged by the fact that we're shipping soon and going to have doors having comics on May 20th which means at that point, we'll have had maybe a two-month drought. And while that can be devastating to any business, in the industry we're in, it can be even more so if a store was already kind of on the ropes and hanging on by, you know, thread. However, having said that, it's a very resilient type of retailer that we have out there. These are very young, energetic, not always young necessarily, but entrepreneurial people who are resourceful. And keep in mind, when I started, it was a different world, but we didn't carry new comics at all. So it was all about back issues. Now, interestingly enough, today, a lot of stores, because space is so precious and so expensive, there are many comic stores that only carry new product because they, A, don't have the room for it or the rent's too high. But I think those that are savvy have been around a long time. And that doesn't mean that the new ones aren't. Some of them do it too. They've used eBay. They've had online sales on Facebook, various other social media tools, curbside service. I think, When you try to speculate who's going to survive or not, I'll give you an an example. If you owned an insurance company and you use mortality tables to determine your insurance rates, an insurance company through the history of mortality rates probably knows within a few percentage points how many 35-year-olds are going to die next year. They don't know which ones, but they know a a certain percentage of they budget. This many are going to die, and we base our rates on that. Not a good analogy of what we're doing here, but it does say that there'll probably will be a fallout. Now, keep in mind, Diamond's goal is for there to be zero fallout. Now, it's kind of like the COVID pandemic. You worry about sometimes the people being said that they died of COVID-19, might've died of something else. Now, that may be the case of stores that don't survive. There may be some that were on the ropes or contemplating retirement, and they'll be lopped in as people who didn't make it. But keep in mind, every year we have a fallout and a growth. We have new stores, we have stores go away. It's just a matter of time. And that it may have been in the case of somebody who's doing well, who just said, you know, this point in time, this may be the signal I need to go away. But what you hope is that whether it's a new entrepreneur opening a comic store for the first time or an existing retailer who sees the opportunity to expand, that the volume that we are used to having will get maintained somewhere, somehow. And it doesn't have to even necessarily be in brick and mortar. It could be a mail order service that gets it. The good thing about our product is it's evergreen because of the back issue market. I've used this the other night on the show I was on where I said, if you're in a restaurant business, sad to say, and the last two months you weren't able to open, all those meals that got eaten at home instead of your restaurant, you're not going to recapture. They've already eaten them. But if the comic books that you wanted that came out or should have came out two months ago, you might still pile them up in the box and want them. So we have a little bit of a built-in, pent-up demand that helps us. Now, as far as what Diamond's doing to help, historically, Diamond has always been, even by default, and we don't shirk that responsibility. We've kind of been, by default, the bank of the industry. And we feel comfortable about having, actually, the privilege of being the guys who, when a good account, for whatever reason, gets a little bit behind, we're happy to be able to try to help them and get through. That doesn't mean we're going to take an account who's notoriously... Not paying for not good reasons and be you know stupid about it. But we're going to continue to do that and probably more than we have in the past. Keep in mind our own cash flow has gotten murdered in this time. But we have a great banking relationship with J P Morgan Chase, the biggest bank in the country. We've worked out a plan with the publishers so that we could make sure they all got paid because while well, we weren't getting income, it affected our ability to pay. But I'll give you an example. Back in 1995. When we bought out Capital City, Capital had, through losing Marvel, DC, and a bunch of the other top tier publishers, had shrunk down from a company that was twenty warehouses. We had twenty eight, they had twenty. we were all over the place with speed of delivery down to one warehouse in Sparta, Illinois, and they hung on valiantly, a fierce competitor for a year trying to carve out a niche distribution. But when I guess things got a little worse, they were smart enough, you know to recognize that and called me because we had had a good relationship despite the competition. And said, you know, Steve, would you it? Now, some people said to me, you know, Steve, you should just wait. They're going to go out of business and you're going to get it all free. That is not where my head was because I knew if that would have happened, a lot of publishers wouldn't have got paid. And then it wouldn't have helped me because I would have all the accounts, but that would have vendors going out of business. So it's kind of likewise today. You're sitting in a situation where we're trying to preserve as an industry. I mean, the parts may move around. This retailer has two stores now. He's got five. One has none. He's got one. That's our goal as Diamond. How do we, in our unique position of being you know, the main distributor, it's a really ominous responsibility, but one I take happily to try to caretake for that. It's tough, and we're not asking for accolades for it. We feel like we benefit a lot from it, so we should be willing to do the things that need to be done. Otherwise, we'd be being selfish, saying, okay, Great for me, I get all the business, but everyone shares a problem, that's somebody else's. That's not the way it works. We've got plans for the retailers, not only to help them financially, we're talking to the publishers that got a certain amount of returnability for them. We do a lot of programs that rely to point of sale purchasing, things that we provide. I remember when the industry was so infantile that we had to have a cash register program. Most stores, and mine was one included way back in the day, they had a little box. We didn't even know what a cash register was. So things have gotten a lot more sophisticated today. Retailers are looking like retailers that got point of sale systems. And they do a lot of things right. So we're doing our best to help them. And it's not limited to what we think they need. They know better than us what they need. And a lot of what they need is unique to them and not every retailer. So we're going to be there ready for them and do everything we can to get them through this. That's awesome.
2: That's a great answer. That's what I was looking for.
0: Alex, back to history distribution. So I want to give the audience just a little bit of background, just a little bit, because I was following you with what you were saying with Hal Schuster and those guys and Beer Bombs common distributors. I want to give a little background. So Phil Suling, he was said to have established, this is kind of what they say in the history books, the direct market in 72. There were some monopoly issues that led to the New Media Urjax lawsuit, which started in 78. And it was against the four publishers that you mentioned. It was Marvel, DC, Warren, and Archie Comics. Then eventually, that kind of broke down the monopoly, and there was some market share up for grabs. And New Media Urjax got some, and they were your distributor. Then also there was Big Rapids. Big Rapids, they actually what from seventy to eighty, they would uh, distribute for some sub distributors like Beer Bombs, Common Ground distributors from seventy to eighty. They went bankrupt. A couple of their employees then started Capital City, which you kind of pointed at already, and that was in nineteen eighty, and they grabbed some of that distribution market share. And so now that kind of set up where it's like you. Capital City and there's a couple other things, like by nineteen eighty-two, which is a big year, Bud planned he acquired A-Bar distributions, right, in nineteen eighty-two. The stage is being set, right, where these three figures are gonna kind of combine at some point. So now that we have some background, first did I get any of that wrong?
1: You've got it right. And there was a few others actually. There was a couple guys called Donahoe Brothers that were back up in that day. There was a lot of by today's standards, they wouldn't have been considered the same thing because everything was so new. And when Marvel finally published public trade terms, that's kind of what opened it up for a lot of other potential distributors. So it wasn't just in a sense that Hal Schuster and Jackie and his father got their share. It literally meant, okay, you're gonna be able to get dropship privileges, but if somebody else meets our minimum requirements and all our rules and all our requirements for distributing, we'll open them up too. And that's when they started opening a bunch of distributors.
0: Yeah, it just kind of opened the gates. It all just started to grow fast. And then diamond distribution... 1982 is this key year because then that's when officially diamond distribution starts. And it was called diamond because there was a Marvel Comics imprint of non-returnable items that had a diamond on it. And that was mm-hmm. your symbol to tell what you were. It was to a symbol of your function as
1: a distributor. Is that right? That's correct. Story's kind of funny because I've always been a believer that whatever your company's name is, it should tell you what you do. If you say Flower Boutique, but you're a comic book store, that would be very misleading or, or just say Nostalgia Crypt and nobody knows that means comics or whatever. And with due respect to those who have store names like that. But in my mind, so I got to thinking, what do we do? Well, we distribute comics, but other people distribute comics. But what do we do that's different? Well, we distribute the Diamond Comics. Because at the time, to differentiate between returnable and not returnable, they sent copies to the newsstand that a newsstand retailer would purchase at a shorter discount but have full returnability. We would get a bigger discount, hence the retailer was buying them cheaper. But if our books got returned through the other system, they could make a profit just by returning them because they'll say, I bought them from Diamond at 50 cents on a dollar and I can return it to them at 60 cents on a dollar, make 10 cents for returning them. Obviously the publishers need to have a way to do that. So they came up with that little Diamond slug. What they did is they ran whichever print run was bigger first and then changed the plate and added that little slug. So I said, you know what? We're the Diamond Comic Distributors. Of course, three months later, they stopped doing that. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <It was ironic. laughs>
0: but you kept it, and it's a nice name.
1: <laughs> and we kept it, and, and it was always a good name, I thought. It was not unique in that a lot of companies, jewelers, we get calls to think we sell jewelry. <laughs> I, when I was Jeffy's Comic World, I got some people thought I was selling comedian supplies. So. Oh, yeah, yeah,
0: right. Yeah, there is an issue with that terminology. You're right, with comedians. Then basically during the 80s, it's just kind of an intense time of change, a lot of flux. And you basically had to keep your mind on all the numbers all the time and multitask all sorts of accounts mentally. Before that started, the deal of buying or acquiring the New Media Urjax accounts, when you bought them out, I read that first you were helping them out, you gave them some free comics to sell to help supplement because they were overextended on what they were publishing, things like that. Then it came to a point where they really just couldn't do it anymore. And so then you had basically bought
1: their warehouses and their debt. As well, is that correct? That's what they really got. Typically, we didn't buy anybody's stock. I don't mean physical stock, I mean like their chairs. So we bought, as we've done with many acquisitions, selected assets and liabilities. And in their case, there was no real cash transaction. But what was happening for them, they were getting off the hook for all the debt, all the books that they had already received, everything that they needed that they were going to be chased for personally, we, you know, assumed. And then in addition to that, because Hal was going to go into publishing. And he put out a few little publications, comics, feature, and a variety of other things. That was going to be their niche and whatever else he was going to pursue. So it was a smooth transition. What it did for me, and I used this example or analogy, I mentioned what happened in 1995, how people said, well, why don't you let the accounts go? You'll get them all. And why I did it then? It was a little bit similar. But at the time when New Media was on hold, one argument was the same way. Why don't you just let them go out and you'll get the business? But there was other distributors. There was no guarantee I was going to get all of them. So I likened it, as I said the other night on Dan Shaheen's show, to a broken gate with a corral full of horses. If I bought the corral while the gate was broken and the horses were still in it, I could fix the gate and keep them. That gate represented the two-month lead time that the orders were in process. So these accounts technically didn't have a choice but to buy from me for those two months. They had a choice after that. They could turn their order form in. A, but I had two months to give them a chance to see what I could do. And fortunately for me, we did a good job, I'd like to think, or otherwise we wouldn't have kept them. All of them stayed. You organized it, yeah. And then you also had to figure
0: out who were good clients, who were bad clients, and then talk to the creditors and be like, look, I'm going to organize this thing. There was quite an interesting movement there to kind of keep the order and keep that functioning while you're kind of putting together your company. Really interesting stuff. It's fascinating.
1: Yeah. So what I did, and as a result of all of that, when I got direct Marvel's terms, there was like, you had to have a separate company to buy direct from Marvel. You couldn't be a retailer. And so I separated the companies on February 1st, 1982. And Jeppy's Comic World, the proprietorship became Jeppy's Comic World Inc. And Diamond became Diamond Comic Distributors Inc. And it was during that tenure where I was now for the first time in my mind, really a distributor, not a retailer, sub-distributor who was doing it as a sideline, as a favor, or maybe even to make a few bucks. When I did that, I had to look at it like a real business. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And it's just my nature. So we did everything we could to try to be as good a service as we could, competitive as we could. And I saw the opportunity to grow through acquisition. And over those years, we literally bought out a lot of distributors I always thought one of the reasons I was able to do that, and maybe this is just self-serving, but I had a good relationship with the other distributors. They might have competed with me, not like it when I got an account, but they were still friends and I still consider them friends. But if they got into a situation where maybe things were not so good, I always felt that they felt, I like, it's hard for me to say, but evidently the history shows that it must have been the case. They were more comfortable calling me, telling them they had a problem and they wanted to sell because I guess... They felt they could trust me. Mm-hmm. And I was happy about that. And I would never betray them and say, okay, well, we didn't work this deal out. But now that you showed me all your numbers, sorry, buddy, I'm going to go pounce on your accounts. I just would never do that. They never had to or never considered it. Yeah,
0: there's a, like goodwill. Because I've talked to other distributors, Beer Bomb and Bud Plant, and they say great things about you. So,
1: well, one of my favorite letters I have is from Milton Greep, who's a dear friend of mine. Milton owned Capital City along with John Davis. And when our deal was all done, And the payments were all made and everything was over and finished to the dot. Milton sent me, I still have it. One of the nicest letters telling me that everything I'd ever heard about when you bought somebody out, you did it to the T and then some. So, you know, it was a really good feeling. Because when you compete with somebody, there's a natural negativity that interferes, you know. But we always had respect for one another. And I highly respect now. Look what he does now for the industry. He's one of the most knowledgeable guys we have in reporting what's going on. That was a good feeling, and I'll never forget that letter. So is the
0: basic reason why a distributor would fail and be in the position in which they could be acquired is because they delivered too much product without getting paid by a retailer?
1: There's a variety of things. Keep in mind, distributors work on the shortest margins of anybody. Today, it's a little different. The margins are even shorter now, but back when it was strictly 20 distributors and everything was buy-sell, meaning publishers would say, this is what you pay, and it's up to you what you want to charge to your customers you know, sliding scale discount. So in an effort to get more business, somebody said, well, I'll give you 55 off. And then somebody said, well, I'll give you 56 off. And then somebody am go, I'll give you a 57. when they got working on such tight margins. It was almost financial suicide to think you could sustain that on such minimal margins. So that coupled with the fact that you're buying non-return. So you might say, well, what risk do you have? Well, you have plenty of risk. First of all, if you order 10,000 of a comic book, and you needed to have extras for reorders. So you bought 11,000 just to make up a number. A, some of your accounts who ordered the 10 that are, so to speak, pre-sold, they might yet not be able to buy them, so you get stuck with them. Then if you order 1,000 extra and you don't sell 1,000 on reorder, they become your inventory, and you could get stuck with that. So it doesn't matter if you sell a million or something, but if you order 2 million, you're gonna lose money. That's it, yeah. So there's always
0: assessing all the time.
1: So that's a couple with freight cars, the air freight wars to get bookstairs faster. I like to think that, you know, today, after having been the exclusive distributor for 25 years, if people really look at it, and I know everybody has their opinions on different levels, but the really good thing that came about, a lot of that money that was wasted on things like air freight are gone. Because now you might not beat your competitor by getting the books a few hours early or a day early, but the protection you have, you're not late. So you trade off being early for not being late. And everybody gets their books on Wednesday. That's a good thing. So there are a lot of good things that I could promote, you know, maybe biasly, self-servingly, but there is truth that there's a certain amount of value in
0: consolidation. And the trains run on time, like you were saying. Precisely. One more question, then Jim's going to go over another section. Did I read correctly that you had purchased Mile High Comics?
1: Not the company. No, no, not at all. No, never. Chuck Rosansky is a good friend of mine. Chuck started Mile High Comics back in the 70s. He's still a great customer of ours. But no, I have never purchased Mile High. I've, heard, I've purchased comics from the famous Mile High collection, okay, which might go. be the confusion. Okay, All
0: right. Glad I cleared it up because I was like, what's going on? Jim, go ahead.
1: A
2: couple of different things. Let's do another bringing it up to modern times. Listening to the part Alex was going over, it seems like one aspect of comics for you throughout your career is that someone else's failure or difficulties and you want to help them, but it's also an opportunity for you to expand or to do something different or to move into a different area. And that's how business works. In the current situation, knowing that there's going to be changes in how everything works in this new order, can you think of business aspects or new technologies that are going to emerge as new players or new winners? I think of like Walmart and what they're doing or comiXology and that aspect of it with online things. Are there things that are directly from the epidemic that we're probably going to see become more
1: influential? I don't think the basic function of getting from A to B with a product is going to change. Now, grant you, we've had to evolve tremendously. We spent $10 million in our olive branch warehouse in Mississippi to put in a system called Domatic that is the same thing that Amazon.com uses. So there's a inherent sophistication with conveyor belts and pre-stamped, pre-weighed boxes. So it takes a lot of the human element out of it. But as it relates to potentially new competition coming in and different sources of that, or even aside from competition, just let's take digital, for example. When digital first became something that was of a concern, a lot of people were in the print side of the world, which is the comic stores and the publishers and even the distributor. Oh my God, you would hear digital going to replace print. And I can honestly say, and I'm documented about it, is that I never got rattled by that. I actually said, I think it's the opposite. I think that it's a good thing that they're spreading the word through digital. And I think it's going to help us create new customers that we might not otherwise get because they're going to discover comics online and they may not have found a comic store to discover them. It's not like in the 50s and the 40s where there was, I think, 150,000 different outlets you might have been able to find across the country, whether it be a grocery store, or a drugstore, or whatever. The comic books existed, so your mom tripped over them everywhere she went. Today, there are much better places to buy comics called comic book stores, but far fewer of them. So children today, when I was five, that was one of the first things I ever got brought home to me. So I was predisposed. But the kid today, not only does he not have that come home to him because it's not in front of his mom, he's got an iPad. He's got a million other things to take his attention away. So from our perspective, digital is a good example of a new innovation, something that's happening. And yet I look at it as a good thing. I guess my belief is based strongly on the inherent belief that the comic books themselves are something that were meant for print, meaning A, they're collectible. Nobody comes running up to an artist and says, sign my iPad. No, they (laughs) want you to sign their comic book. They have value, not to put all the emphasis on their value. Remember the whole comic industry direct market started because of back issues. We didn't have new comics. We weren't, they weren't available to us. They were on the newsstand, but we just open stores because we knew there was a demand. That's something that the digital can't do. No one's going to have a digital Spider-Man number one and feel like they got anything really special. Yeah, you're right. Because a billion people might have it. But if you got a 9.8 Spider-Man one or any great Spider-Man one, that's your baby and then and, and it's got value. That's one example, digital. Today, you know, you got Kickstarter as another way to create revenue for a publisher or a creator. And I don't begrudge them that if they can go out and find a market that they know Starting out would probably not work in the direct market starting out. It may be the feeder tube because, for example, if you have a comic that maybe you come to Diamond and Diamond even says, I'll carry it. But Diamond puts it out there. It's in this monstrous catalog called Previews. The retailer's got a limited budget. He sees the thing in there, but it's so buried in a sense that he can't really even sometimes notice it. So they get pathetic numbers. But he goes and does a Kickstarter and develops a following. It's kind of like a YouTube show. You know, you, you get enough followers eventually, then you become commercial and monetized. So it's the same thing. I like the idea that there's experimentation. It was asked to me recently, I think it was on Kevin Smith's show or whatever, how do I feel about new competition? I said, well, you know, I've always been competitive. And even though it might be argued that we have the most of the direct market, on our other sidelines, our merchandise and our other toys and things like that we're the little fish in the big pond. So we're used to competition. And quite frankly, when there were 20 distributors, we felt like we did pretty good or we wouldn't end up where we were. But with that in mind, if there is new distribution out there and it helps make the market grow, I would rather have a lesser percentage of a much bigger market than 100% of a smaller market.
2: Right Now, we're kind of going to go back to a historical aspect of it, but one that I'm interested in very much, which is, a function is gatekeeper, or some would say a censor. But during your time, both as a retail owner and as a distributor, you've run into an occasional controversy where some people sure took exception to decisions that you made. I'm thinking of—I uh, know Pacific Comics had a bit of a write-up about some things at one point. Gerber and Merrick's uh, Void Indigo graphic novel. And more recently, but not that recently, Alan Moore's Miracle Man 9 with the childbirth scene. Are those three good
1: examples? They're very good. Again, like Omaha, the cat dancer, I remember. And At the time, basically, it was a two-way street in a way. Like I felt that was definitely called a center. And I guess by everybody's definition, I was because I was saying, I'm not going to carry that. Remember, I wasn't Diamond Comic Distributors, the big chunk of the market. There was still availability through all the other distributors. But I understood it, it looked like, yeah, but my customers, they're being shut out of being able to buy this, that, or the other. And I learned from that. I was concerned because I was a little offended by the fact that I had no choice whatsoever. Miracle Man 9 was an example where there was a birthing scene, and I gave the illustration. Nobody cared about it, but I said, what if my daughter picks this up? I'm trying to teach her the birds and the bees, and somebody's peaching them for me. Would I get a chance? You know, I I felt a little offended, but I got to expect every time that it wasn't my place to interfere. I could still do with my own stores if I wanted to, which at the time I had a few stores. To tell you the truth, I don't think I even end up doing that. But I also had other concerns at the time. And to tell you the truth, some of those are still true because even if Steve Deppie doesn't care what he carries or how pornographic or whatever it is, when you try to take comics over the border into Canada or vice versa, we had issues. I couldn't hold up the flag and say, but it's my amendment, my first amendment. Right. Well, I'm Canada. You're United States. I don't want to hear your argument. So I also felt there's part of my job, whatever you want to call it, was that I had a fiduciary responsibility also to protect the retailer. Now, a lot of people didn't want protection because they felt like I was being a censor. But at the same token, there were those who lauded it. I created a section in previews, which was a far cry from what previews is today. It was more like a stapled pack of pieces of paper. And it was called Cautionary Comics. So when I first dipped my toes into the, let's say, books I might not have carried before, I felt at least a little personal relief by saying, okay, I'm telling the retailer ahead of time, I've gotten to see the samples. And rather than me just have you call me up and say, you didn't tell me this had a birthing scene or whatever, we're going to list these under the auspices of cautionary comics so you know ahead of time, be prepared what you might get. And it's kind of funny on that because it wasn't just about sexual content or things like that. It had to do with also what we felt about the professional level of the comic book. I I didn't feel like I had a responsibility or I didn't feel like I would be doing the retailer right if two kids in college got a roll of toilet paper and drew two stick men and put a set of trade terms in and said, solicit this, and I say, no, I'm a censor, you know, I feel like that's not fair. However, the funny stories about this is I had a drawer, I would get the samples, and next to my desk was a credenza. And when I'd get something that maybe I chose was just not really worth putting all the order form, that but the retailer's going to thank me because this is too amateur, I'd throw it in that drawer. So years later, when Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles became a mega hit, I immediately ran to my drawer and I found a copy of a first print Teenage Mutant. <laughs> you know, God forgive me for actually not being that bright about seeing the potential for that. But I guess at the time it was so new and so fresh that it was like, I'm so used to looking at color Marvel comics with famous artists and anything that looked less than that was probably in my amateur mind myself or from a professional evaluation standpoint, probably not commercial. going to work out. Uh-huh. And I'll tell you this though, 99.99% of one in that drawer probably would have never been successful. Today, we don't have that approach. Today, we still have to be careful. You know, i get to stick man on the toilet paper, but at the same token today, you know, we carry a lot. And then you know what the irony of it is? Now we get the opposite. Why are you carrying all this crap? This is the previews is crowded enough. Marvel's got too many titles. DC's got too many titles. And now you're putting this in the preview. It's like you can't win. It's a tough job being a distributor, but I love it. I'm curious.
2: Did you ever run into any problems or resistance or get on the bad side of Comic Book Legal Defense Fund?
1: No, I was on the board for a period of time. I've never had a problem with the Comic Book Legal Defense I very big supporter of theirs.
2: I knew that, and I wondered if there was ever a conflict because of some of the
1: stances you were taking. You got to remember, I think the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund came later. Oh, it I see. It probably wasn't even in play at the time. I don't know the dates, but I'm pretty sure that was after that little period of time where I was being cautious. Those two
0: years of those comics were 1983 and 1987.
1: So I was personally on the board. Chris Powell is still on the board who works for me, and I'm a supporter of them. I stand by what they do. That's great.
0: Back to the 80s, 1985, I had read you had hired a dollars and cents CPA guy, Chuck Parker, to help iron out some of the emotion out of some of the financial decisions because you made relationships with people and you needed kind of like that cool, cold kind of look at the numbers. Was that an important step for you to have someone like that around?
1: It was very important because going back to whatever, this is in the 80s, Chuck's been with me almost 35 years, I think now, pretty much the whole length of Diamond's tenure. And he's still with you now? Yeah, he's still with me now. It started with my bank. And, you know, I always used to say I had all the right numbers, but the wrong product when I talked to a bank. They loved my balance sheet, but (laughs) you saw what? And And then there was a little suspect, like a lot of mothers and fathers thought when they brought their kid in there, they're going into a drug shop. We can't be making money selling comics. You must have drugs here. So the banks, although I kind of proved my worth, I would get my, I I got my first $10,000 unsecured loan. That was like a score. And I paid it off early just because of that. I wanted to make sure. I actually one or two times took a loan I didn't need just so I could pay it off and show them a history. But what happened was, as I started to grow, and this is still wee numbers compared to today. We did more in a week today than we did in a year then. What happened is the bank would start telling me, you know, we, we want to work with you. We know what your needs are. We see the numbers. They're good. But you really need a controller in here. You need somebody who can understand. And prior to that, Chuck was working for a company called KAW, Katze Bosch and Wendishon, and they were friends. And so the bank told me I should, which meant you have to <laughs> in definition, hire somebody internally. Prior to that, Chuck had been working for KAW, my outside accountant. So he would literally come in, spend days dragging out of my boxes my paperwork to create the numbers that ordinarily we were supposed to be giving oh, okay. them to do. He had to literally go get them and then do them. So we went around, started interviewing, and Chuck was at every interview. And I was one of those guys that comfortability was important. And I thought to myself, every time we'd interview someone, I'd be looking over at Chuck and saying, I think I should hire him and that's those guys. <laughs> So one day I went over to Steve Gershman, who was one of Chuck's bosses, and said, Steve, I says, I don't want to offend you, and I would never do things behind your back, but you've been showing me all these candidates. I really like to hire Chuck. Would you be upset if I hired Chuck? He said, well, it would hurt us, he said, but, you know, we'd be flattered, you know, and that's the nature of our business, people move on. And I think Chuck kind of expected it. I might have been sending body language signals. I don't know. He could tell you. And then I hired Chuck, and it was probably one of the best moves I ever made because it freed me up from having to be doing everything. And I had the comfort of knowing I had somebody who really not only understood, but cared a lot. It really led to a lot of other great employees, not the least which of Larry Swanson's, our CFO. These are guys all, I think they hate me at K-A-W because I think I hired like six people out of that company. That was really important. That was one of the most important things that happened.
0: Now, that's awesome. Thanks for giving me this, some background on Chuck. That's cool. And that's cool that he's still with you now. Now, 1987, so interesting year for you and Diamond. So Diamond made around 19 million in sales went national in 1988 with the purchase of the West Coast Bud Plants business, who had also acquired on the way there between 82 and 88, Pacific Distribution, as well as Nanette Rozanski's Alternate Realities Distributors. So basically with that buyout, it looks like around that time, he was interested in kind of selling because he sold Comics and Comics a year after that. Basically with that buyout, you had control of about 40% of the direct market. Did you call him or did he call you? How did that happen?
1: It's a great story. I told you before, I always kind of had a good relationship with the, you know, competitors and friends, you know, where we would be comfortable. This is a great story because at the time, First Comics, Rick Obadiah, may he rest in peace, started First Comics. And Rick was suing Marvel, and he was also suing World Color Press at Sparta, Illinois for price discrimination. And they called me, Bud Plant, and Gary Colabono, a retailer in Chicago, another dear friend, to court as witnesses for First Comics. It was an awkward position because I didn't want to be an enemy of World Color Press or Marvel, but I was, you know, in effect, I think it was actually a subpoena. Bottom line is, I forget the guy's first name. His last name was Cherry. He was a hotshot attorney, you know, really fast-moving, aggressive. So I never forget, they put me on the stand. I was on the stand all day long, grilling me the elf, lawyers for World Color Press back and forth, and I'll just be an honest, and this sounds a little self-serving, but at the end of the day, Cherry came over to Gary me and Bud, and said, Steve did such a good job today. I'm not going to need you guys. Kerry couldn't go. He had to go home. He lived in Chicago. Me and Bud lived on the coast. So he sent me and Bud to dinner at Nick's Fish House, I think it was called, or Nick's Steakhouse in Chicago. I don't know if it's still there, but it was one of the greatest meals I ever had. And so Cherry yeah. must have called the maitre d' and we were like kings. I think we didn't even see a menu for the first hour. <laughs> we had everything being brought to us like kings. But what was significant about that, because it was an hour before we even saw a menu, we had a three and a half hour dinner. And it was during that dinner that I started to talk more seriously to Bud about the possibility of selling his company. You have to understand that up to that point, my distribution scope had been from the Midwest, call it Chicago, Sparta slash St. Louis, Dallas East. He represented all new territory for me, the West. He had seven locations as a result of the acquisitions you meant. And keep in mind, when Bud used to advertise before he got into comics, his ad slogan was, but no comics. He would have Art books and everything, but no comic. So, Bud kind of went into this, and he'll tell you this kicking and screaming. He never, I don't think, really wanted to be a comic book distributor like we define it today. So, during that dinner, we formed kind of the semi handshake version of it. Before I knew it, we were signing a deal July 16th, 1988. We purchased Bud Plant Inc., who was the third largest distributor. Diamond was the second largest distributor. And by virtue of that acquisition, we overnight became The largest distributor, hence the world's largest distributor of English language comics, which gave us, as you mentioned, collectively about a 44% market share overall. And that purchase, you mentioned we did $19 million in 1987, which I think is an accurate number. It was overnight on paper, much let alone reality, a 60% increase in our size, which is a big thing for any company to take a company and have 60% growth overnight. And it actually ended up being more because the industry was growing but we swallowed it. And those seven warehouses, never forget Chuck Parker went with me. We flew to seven cities in seven days. We met with all the employees at each location. We called in every retailer at every location. And I never was so worn out from meetings in my life. But in seven days, we managed to make our pitch and we got the opportunity. And as I say, the, you know, the rest is history.
0: That's interesting because there's one thing signing the page, but then there's the other thing of incorporation and physically getting everybody. Actually doing it, And yeah. coordinating everybody.
1: We had had a lot of experience with the other having bought out a bunch of smaller distributors, but it was still challenging. It was a very, very big ask to do. But we got great cooperation from, keep in mind, you're working for these other companies and for all intents and purposes, even though they were on the West Coast, Diamond's, quote unquote, competitor. And now all of a sudden you're going to be working for the competition. But I think meeting with those employees was a big factor. They got to see me in person, got to talk to them personally reassuring them honestly from my heart what my intentions were. They gave me a chance, and it worked out. I'm very blessed to have had that opportunity, but it was scary. And I'll give Chuck Parker a lot of credit there because once I did the signing, him and the other people at my company took over the heavy lifting, and not the physical side of it of shipping books, but the the behind-the-scenes, doing the contract, getting it ready, negotiating, and making it happen. So that was another significant part
0: they Mm. played. That's awesome. Now, Bud was also distributing underground comics, which you hadn't distributed
1: those before that, right? I had not, no. We took the position, though, we were not going to take away from anything that Bud was doing and make it be less than what they had. I don't remember the details, but if Bud was carrying something and we weren't, we were now carrying it.
0: So you incorporated that part of the distribution too,
1: then? Yeah, and it was interesting because that's kind of your birth of previews. Because we had been putting together a stapled together package of pages with one-line listings for whatever we were soliciting. And I'll never forget the day when some of the guys moved east, come to work for me, that worked for Bud Plan, not the least of which, which is Mr. Previews, Marty Grosser, who's still doing it. But it was a guy named Steve Bond, and I'll never forget the day how proudly he walked into my office there and handed me my first copy of what was a much smaller version of previews. I was so proud. I had such a primitive-looking order form compared to Capital City, who had advanced comics and looked much better than ours, quite frankly. But now, look at this. I've got a catalog that looks like a catalog. Because we didn't have those capabilities. Despite the size we had, we had been doing it more on a shoestring, in a sense. So, that was a fun time. So, you picked up new tricks with each acquisition. Well, the goal was to take the sum of the parts and make them greater than the total. And so, we, through a but plain acquisition, became better on the graphic side with the order form. And one of the most valuable things I've always felt that I got in an acquisition was the human resources. We weren't just buying volume and, you know, geography. We were getting people that were loyal to Bud for many, many years that had proven themselves in the industry. And some of those people are still with us today. So that's valuable. And I just couldn't have done it without them to tell you the truth.
0: Now, due to the volume of product delivery, you had mentioned it that you and capital at this point now were able to have better deals with Marvel and DC because you had more efficient freight systems with handling high volume. And by having high volume, you have less of a margin, but you could actually still make a good profit because there was so much stuff being transported. Is that right?
1: Yeah, we never got a better deal from the publisher per se, you know, because the discounts were the discounts and it was still buy-sell at that time. You know, we'd buy it 60% off and sell on a sliding scale, upwards of 55, 56, 57%. But in the course of that, where we would benefit was the combined volume gave us the economies of scale, because a certain amount of the overhead was fixed. Buzz was a little different because we're picking up seven new locations, but there was still a certain portion of that economy of scale that inured to us that made us be able to work, albeit on the same or lesser margins over the years, with the increases of cover price, with the increases of the amount of copies we were selling, we could allocate the costs of customer service and whatever other add-on services we do across the board. So instead of having 500 accounts to allocate that heavy cost, that fixed cost. We could now have 1,000 or whatever as it grew to.
0: Last one, then Jim will go to the next section, is in 1990, you acquire selected assets of Seattle-based distributor Destiny Distribution and took over the operations of Oregon's second genesis. Richard Finn, yes. I
1: never forget that deal because I had flown in to meet Phil Pankow, who owned Destiny, and I'd done a deal. I was done. I had to fly to Los Angeles. I'm in Los Angeles, happy about the deal. I get a phone call from Phil. He had gotten apparently a call from Milton and now he was telling me I've been topped. The deal was off the table. I had to fly back up there, kept him up to four in the morning, I think. And I finally convinced him to come back and salvage the deal. So that was one that almost got away.
0: (laughs) That's interesting.
1: Well, this is an awesome
0: episode of the Comic Book Historians podcast. Thank you so much, Steve Jeppy, for joining me and Jim today and discussing the first half of your career. People at home, please stay tuned with us in a couple weeks for the second half of the Steve Jeppe interview here at the Comic Book Historians podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson.